0: All right, good morning. morning. This morning we're continuing with our survey of the New Testament with the book of 2 Thessalonians. This is a really short book, three chapters, 47 verses, and so I'm going to get to do what only Kerry Wilson has accomplished so far in our survey of the entire Bible, and that was when there were 25 verses in Philemon. He got to read every verse in that book. Today we'll do the same thing. More of God's word, less of my commentary. That's a good thing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to bless our time together, shall we? Heavenly Father, uh, prepare our hearts uh, to receive your word. Lord, I ask your blessing on, on my teaching today uh, that we would understand uh, what it is that you inspired to write Paul to write to the Thessalonians. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. All right, to begin our survey of 2 Thessalonians, let's begin with the theme. Standing firm while waiting for Christ's return. Standing firm while waiting for Christ's return. In this epistle, Paul encourages the believers in Thessalonica to continue with the same steadfastness in their faith and the patience for which he'd already commended them in the letter we went through last week with Michael, 1 Thessalonians. But here he's concerned with further correcting a misunderstanding about the return of Christ. We're going to go through today how he explains that the day of the Lord and its wrath uh, hasn't come yet. And that God's wrath wasn't reserved for them. We're going to talk a lot about this, but it was reserved for their non believing opponents, the people that were persecuting them, and for somebody that we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about today, the man of lawlessness. So, of course, the author is the Apostle Paul. It's really not debated. The early uh, church fathers knew it was him. And as we'll talk about, he signed this letter with his own distinctive signature so that we could know it was him. As far as the time and place, um, Michael introduced us a little bit to Thessalonica. Um, last week. This was founded, this town, in 315 BC, so three and a half centuries before uh, the first century when Paul actually founded this little church and when he was writing this letter to them. Some guy named Cassander of Macedon founded the church. And Thessalonica is one of the few New Testament cities that's still in existence today. It's now known as Thessaloniki, and about 300,000 people live there. I actually found a A picture of it on Google this is a recent photo of the ancient Roman ruins that they accidentally dug up back in the 60s while they were doing some sort of work in the city and the archaeologists believe that this Roman forum probably was uh, the center of public and political life in in, uh, Thessalonica Thessalonica sorry you can see in the background there um, there's a small theater that they think was sometimes actually used for gladiatorial games. And that's very cool. It's still there today. When Paul made his journey to this city, uh, it had a population. It was a very strong population of almost 200,000 people. It was made up mostly of Greeks, as you can imagine. It, it sits in modern-day Greece. But as it was part of the Roman uh, civilization, there were a lot of Romans, but they had a really healthy population, a minority population of Jews. Jews. Like Michael mentioned last week, uh, this city, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, how do you say it, Thessalonica? Like you, I keep messing it up. It's located on something called the Ignatian Way, or the Via Ignatia, which extended from the Adriatic Sea on the western shore of Greece to the Straits at Byzantium, which was later called Constantinople, now we call it Istanbul, to the east. So this road was a major link between Italy and Asia. And you can still see evidence of this road today. The Romans were quite the engineers. And this is stuff that's still evident today of the Ignatian way. Let's talk a little bit about the church at Thessalonica. It's recorded in Acts chapter 17. I went back and read this. Man, it's fascinating what happened there. So Paul and his companions Silas and Timothy, they they came through. They had just left Philippi. And they passed through this town, M I want to say this right, Amphipolis, I believe. Um, and they came into Thessalonica right around 49 A.D. And as was Paul's custom, he found the local Jewish synagogue and he goes in there for three Sabbaths, the scriptures say, and he started teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and reasoning with the Jews. And the scripture says that quite a few Jewish converts. Uh, Reacted to his preaching. There were even some uh, prominent Greeks and uh, a few prominent Greek women. And the Jewish Orthodox community was not happy. They were very angry about this. And they began to pursue him, possibly put him in jail, kill him, we don't know. But in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas were actually forced to flee the city of Thessalonica. They left Timothy behind. They went to Berea. They began preaching and teaching there these uh, Jews from Thessalonica were still so inflamed at what he'd done there they found out what he was doing in Berea they, they went up there, they chased him out of Berea and then he famously went to Athens and he taught at the Areopagus to the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers there and then he ended up in Corinth where he wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, these letters back to the church where he hadn't seen them for a long time right around 50-51 AD it's kind of interesting that very little time had passed between the writing of his first letter to that church and this church. We think maybe one to three months, so not a lot of time. We'll talk a little bit about that today. This church went through some incredible turmoil at its beginning, though. I mean, we can't even imagine probably today what it was like for them professing Christ in this environment. We talked a few weeks ago about the Greco-Roman culture how pantheistic, polytheistic, and emperor worship. So to 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 say I don't uh, worship any of those gods. We worship the one true Creator God. Was politically, culturally um, dangerous and quite hard. And then you had the Jews that hated this message of Jesus Christ. And so their persecution was quite real, and it probably honed their faith quite a bit. So this was a very very strong little church that had been established. And um, this is why Paul told them in his first epistle how much he longed to see them and how pleased he was to hear the report that they were still standing strong and steadfast in their faith since he'd been chased out of town. So let's talk about why he wrote this particular epistle. What was the occasion? Not long after the first letter was delivered that Michael talked about last week, Paul received word that someone either from outside the church maybe it was somebody in the church, we don't know, this text doesn't say, was preaching that this persecution they were going through um, proved that they were in the day of the Lord, that they were suffering under the wrath of God in the day of the Lord. There was also a forged letter purported to be from Paul that declared that believers would go into the tribulation or the day of the Lord. And we'll see today as we read through Uh, chapter 3 in particular, that there was another problem that he needed to address once again. Apparently there were some who hadn't followed Paul's admonition that they work with their hands and not be idle and be busybodies. Maybe they were assuming that because Christ's return was imminent, um, they didn't need to work anymore. So it's apparent from this letter that there was a misunderstanding about Christ's return, and so that's something he wanted to talk about because he'd preached And he'd written differently to them, and the church membership, it appears, was a little bit confused. So Paul thought it was necessary to write this second letter to provide clarity. No one knows for sure, by the way, who brought back this report to Paul. It might have been whoever took the letter, the first letter, probably spent some time there, noticed what was going on, came back to him. It could have been a visitor, we just don't know. But Paul's purpose in writing this epistle was, I'd say, it was fivefold. First, he wanted to let them know that he was so thankful for their increasing faith, their love for each other. And secondly, he wanted to assure them, this is very important, that Christ's return would not only deliver them from the persecution and the wrath of the day of the Lord, but it would also cause the destruction of the unsaved. It wasn't for them, it was for the unsaved, the people that were persecuting him. Third, he wanted to calm their anxiety caused by the false teaching About them being in the day of the Lord. Fourth, he exhorted them to pray for him because he was going through quite a bit in Corinth at the same time and to stand strong in their faith and also to obey his commands. And then fifthly, he wanted to give them further warnings, like we mentioned, against idleness. And then finally, as kind of an add on, he actually gave them a sign. We'll talk about this so that they could identify his letters from forged ones. So let's talk about some distinctives. We always, As we go through this, we've said many, many times that in the canon of the Bible, there's no unnecessary repetition. God doesn't waste effort on unnecessary books and words. Uh, Each book has its own unique characteristics and additions and nuances that it brings to the text. So let's talk about that a little bit. There are some similarities between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Paul talks about faith, love, and hope. He develops a couple of themes that he introduced in 1 Thessalonians, like the lack of work, um, understanding about the return of Christ. But in this second letter, Paul doesn't deal with every subject that he talked about in the first letter. If you remember, he talked about sexual purity quite a bit in the first letter. And another thing that he talked about there that he doesn't talk about here is um, the people who had died in Christ. What what was going to happen with them? Would they be resurrected? He doesn't talk about that here. Um, the problem of idleness He does address it again But it's gotten worse apparently Some had failed to, com- to obey his command To work Again possibly because they thought Well you know, Christ could return We're probably already in the day of the Lord um, So he had to address that These are the main reasons he's writing this letter But his teaching this time Is different than in the first letter um, Again We'll keep reiterating this I like repetition. In the first letter, he emphasized what Christ's coming would mean for believers. Here, he's going to reiterate and explain what it means for the non-believers, and also what it would mean, like I said, for this man of lawlessness. It's a very interesting topic. He wasn't mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. All right, so now we're going we're gonna to pick up our survey. Like I said, we're going to go through each and every one of these 47 verses, and uh, I'll get some help from uh, Dr. Robert Gromacki and Dr. John MacArthur. Uh, really gained a lot from their commentaries. Um, and then also from talking to our local theologians, uh, J.D. Summers and Michael Dietzel. So put a lot of thought in, into uh, you know, understanding this text. I, so many of these things have helped me as I've studied this. So uh, I'm excited to share this with you. Let's go to our Bibles. Uh, open up to 2 Thessalonians. Start in chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses together. It says, His greeting and His thanksgiving. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So here in his opening remarks, Paul gives thanks for their growing faith and their love for each other, and he's encouraging them in the midst of all these persecutions, continue in that steadfast faith. And here he's he's referring as he talks about. Their faith. He's talking about everything that's happened since he planted this church and um, now this second epistle. And he tells them, man, I've talked about you everywhere I've been. You are the model church. Keep it up. We love what you're doing. Let's go to uh, verses 5 through 12. This is the judgment at Christ's coming. This is evidence. He's talking about the persecution they're suffering. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of, may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is assuring them, again, that it wasn't unfair of God to allow them to suffer these tribulations and persecutions. And like um, J.D.'s dad, Pastor Mike Summers, he preached here in October of 2016, and I noticed in the margins of my Bible, he said that when you're being persecuted for your profession of Christ. And it's hard for us to imagine what that really must be like. I mean, we have a little bit of that in Lawrence, Kansas, but this was bad. When you're being persecuted for your profession of Christ, you're being given evidence of your election. I thought that was so cool. And that's essentially what Paul's telling them here. Their behavior demonstrated that they're worthy of the kingdom of God and that their persecutions, their persecutors rather, would suffer God's wrath. Christ will inflict vengeance on them in the form of flaming fire and eternal destruction when he returns. This was to continue to give them great hope. And he states that Christ will be glorified in the believers and they'll be admired by him. And he prays that God would continue to work out his will. This is his will that he's elected them, that he'd be glorified in them now in the midst of their persecutions. All right, let's move on to chapter 2. Read the first two verses. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Again, through some teaching of some unnamed person, we don't know who they were, the believers had become very disturbed about the possibility that they were already in the day of the Lord, that this persecution was the wrath of God. They did believe that Christ could come at any any moment, but somehow they'd been told that their persecutions were the ones that would happen during what we know as the Great Tribulation. And they were wondering if maybe they'd missed the rapture because they hadn't been watching, or maybe they'd just been misled about the timing of the rapture. So let's move forward and read um, in chapter 2. Let's read verses 3 through 12. Paul goes on to say this, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders with, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So why is Paul telling them that they couldn't be in the day of the Lord here? For the answer, let's go back and look at verse 3. You can see it there. Actually, see, two major events that haven't occurred yet. The rebellion and the revealing of the man of lawlessness who actually sits in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be divine, to be God. Those things have not happened yet. Since this hadn't happened yet, they couldn't possibly be in the day of the Lord. Paul's reminding them, again, what he'd originally taught them. And when he talks about the mystery of lawlessness already being at work, Um, He's acknowledging what we already know. Satan is active in this world. You know, the Bible talks about him as the prince of the power of the air, right? But he argued that this uh, man of lawlessness, he also calls him the son of destruction. He has two names for him. Wouldn't be revealed until the Holy Spirit removed his restraining influence. And I, I know a lot of people that are very fearful of things that are going on in the world, politically, whatever, and uh, sometimes it's like, man, can you believe things that are going on? And I heard somebody say once, we have no idea how incredibly powerful the restraining hand of the Holy Spirit is right now. If he were to remove that, like he's talking about here, that's when you see things get really bad. The power of the Holy Spirit is restraining things, but when he decides to remove it, it's not like he's going to leave and disappear but he'll remove his restraining hand. That's when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And notice what Paul says in verse 9 here, that the world would be deceived by his satanic miracles. And in verse 11, they believe the lie that he, a man, was actually divine. But in verse 8, Paul promises them that this lawless one will be destroyed when Christ returns, giving them hope. Here's what John, uh, Dr. John MacArthur says in his commentary. I think this is really, this is helpful to me. Paul wasn't referring here to apostasy like a, a general uh, defection from the gospel truth, like a general apostasy. There have always been apostate churches, like if you look in uh, Revelation chapter 3 at the church in Laodicea, that was an apostate church. We could go through many examples in Scripture of apostate individuals, okay? This kind of generalized apostasy has always been present in the church age. So it can't be taken, according to MacArthur, to be a particular time period. can't be the specific event that Paul is talking about here when he says the rebellion. There are a lot of New Testament passages that we could go through we don't have time, but apparently they do tell us that this general apostasy will reach its peak in the end times. And I don't know how many of you have seen this. Um, the Pew Research Center shows us that at least in America, every successive generation, we're seeing a decline in church attendance. seen um, similar data from uh, um, Barna. I mean, particularly, you look at the younger generation. Man, the, the amount of just total atheists, it keeps going down and down. This follows the trends that we've seen in Europe the past 30 or 40 years. So, you know, could this mean anything? We don't know. but, but certainly. Um, There will be heightened apostasy in the end times. I'm not making predictions or saying where we're at. Um, But this has plagued the church throughout church history. Nothing new under the sun. And Here in in, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, Paul uses the definite article. He says, the rebellion. Again, he he reveals this. This this isn't some type of general trend that he's thinking about. It's a specific trend identifiable act of apostasy that would be a blasphemous act of unprecedented magnitude. And Paul identifies this apostasy by naming the key character connected with it. Who is that? The man of lawlessness. And we're going to talk about the Antichrist too. Um, Jan, you're always one step ahead of me. We should take a minute here and talk about the man of lawlessness. Is he the same as the Antichrist? See, you prompted me. <laughs> You've read my notes. So the Antichrist. I had to look this up. Because I've always heard about the Antichrist. Capital A, you know. Um, so I looked on Esword. Typed in Antichrist. By the way, the, the original word was antichristo. Antichristos means the opposite of Christ or one who opposes Christ, and I was kind of surprised. It only shows up four times in all of Scripture. Three times in 1 John, once in 2 John. It's always a little a. Um, So who is the Antichrist? Here's what 1 John 2.22 says. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Boy, that describes a lot of people. So apparently, there, to me, it seems that this says there are a lot of antichrists. 2 John chapter 1, verse 7 also says, I believe it says there are many antichrists, says this, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So we could say Judas was an antichrist, But as horrible as his apostasy was, it pales in comparison to uh, the son of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, what he'll commit. Uh, Judas betrayed the son of God. Uh, The man of lawlessness will proclaim himself to be God. Bit of a difference there. Judas went astray, but the man of lawlessness will lead much of the world astray. So we might be able to say that the man of lawlessness, he's no ordinary antichrist, But as I searched through the Scriptures, I was kind of surprised. I don't see that he's ever referred to anywhere in Scripture as the Antichrist. But uh, the Apostle John did have another name for this guy. He refers to the man of lawlessness as the beast that we read about in Revelation 19, verses 19 and 20. We don't have a lot of time to go through that, but uh, Paul called him the man of lawlessness. John referred to him as the beast. Seems to be the same guy. And he's different from Satan. Um, notice in verse 9 of 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 2 that his coming is by the activity of Satan. It doesn't say he is Satan, it's by the activity of Satan. And Satan, by the way, in Revelation 19 and 20, is different from the beast. Revelation 20, verse 10, actually tells us that ultimately, when Christ returns on the white horse, that Satan is actually thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. So they're separate persons, just FYI. The whole point is here that no one triumphs over Christ. And this is why Paul is telling the Thessalonians here that believers don't need to fear the day of judgment when God's wrath is poured out on the world. For those who are in Christ, he calls them those who are not in darkness, that the day, that day, would not overtake them like a thief, as he wrote in in 1 Thessalonians. So, again, like Paul says here in in chapter 2, verse 1, we're waiting for Jesus to return from heaven and gather us to himself. We're patiently waiting for the true Christ, not the Antichrist. Only those who are deceived live in fear without the hope of the assurance of Christ's triumphant return to destroy the enemies of the church. So again, Paul's already told him in his first epistle, any moment Christ can return, appearing in the clouds to gather the believers to him. Clearly this hasn't happened yet. Can we all agree on that? Okay. Paul makes it clear that the apostasy, the man of lawlessness's apostate self-deification and desecration of the temple is a unique, unmistakable event that precedes Christ coming to wreak havoc on his enemies and the beast, the man of lawlessness. And since that clearly hasn't happened, believers don't need to fear that day because for us it never will come. All right, let's move forward. Chapter 2, verse 13. Paul's going to talk about standing firm. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And when he's talking about traditions here, by the way, he's not talking about the traditions of men. He's referring to the spoken word that he had revealed to him or written to them. That's the traditions he's talking about. Continuing on with verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Moving on to the first verse of the next chapter. Finally, brothers, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God, and to the steadfastness of Christ. So again, Paul's giving thanks for their spiritual steadfastness in contrast to the deceived world. They believe the truth that that God effectively called them through through Paul's preaching. And so we could say they were predestined for God's glory. He's encouraging them again to stand and hold the doctrinal positions that he's taught them to be comforted by God's promises, and he's asking him to pray for his ministry because, by the way, in Corinth, he's under some persecution too. He was constantly in danger. All right, let's move to verse 6 of chapter 3. He's going to warn them now against the idleness that he'd already talked about in the first letter. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. For you yourselves know uh, we were not with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't because we didn't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were there with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, Let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So in the first letter, he was exhorting the church here. He's commanding them concerning these disorderly brethren, advising them to withdraw fellowship from any professing believer who refuses to work. Citing himself as an example, as an apostle, he could have gone in there. They should have revered him and said, you don't have to do a thing. But he said, I want to do this as an example to you, to show you what it means to work with your hands. And he's saying, if if these disorderly brethren... Don't obey these commands, don't have anything to do with them. They're they're not an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Let's move to the benediction, uh, verses 16 through 18. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So, Paul's closing this really short epistle with a prayer that they would be conscious of God's presence, of his peace, and of his grace. And he tells them how to distinguish his letters from forgeries, like the one that caused all this misunderstanding, saying, This is the way I write. To affirm the authenticity of all of his letters throughout all of his epistles, he personally signed each one of them at the bottom. It was his own distinctive signature. This became the distinguishing mark in all of the letters that he wrote. And with that, we'll close our overview of 2 Thessalonians. But I'll say this in closing. Something that we consistently see in all of Paul's epistles is that he wanted the church He wanted us, he wanted those believers to be the pillar of truth. But in order to do that, the church has to be able to distinguish truth from error. And Paul was very, very, very deeply concerned about guarding, protecting, and ensuring the authenticity of the revelation that Jesus Christ revealed to him. And you're going to see this over the next couple of weeks in Paul's letter to Timothy. And so I hope you'll come back next week. Michael is going to pick up the book of First Timothy. So we'll hopefully see you then.